0: coming up next on the wet fly swing podcast
1: if i was going to give a casting tip on the double haul most people have struggled returning with their left hand as coordinate get a bunch of rubber bands bungee them together and attach it to the bottom guide of your fly rod. take the top half of your fly rod set it off to the side and then pulling down with your left hand or your non dominant hand You'll feel the bungee cord stretching, that rubber band stretching, and let it bring itself back up and learn that bounce feel. But I would say, as a rule of thumb, your haul hand should match your casting hand in length and intensity. That was Tim Ray Jeff sharing some of his best fly casting tips,
0: a casting champion fly casting tips, and the why and how behind Echo Fly Fishing today.
1: Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly
0: fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thank you for stopping by the show. Give a follow right now on Instagram. If you're on Instagram and haven't followed us at Wet Fly Swing right now, you'll get a chance. You can ask a question for an upcoming guest and stay up to date on everything we have going there. And we'll give you a shout out on this podcast as well. Today's episode is sponsored by Chota Outdoor, legendary comfort and equipment you can trust. Chota insists on the finest materials and craftsmanship. You can assure you have the highest standards of quality. You'll feel in control of the elements in your Chota gear. Every product is solidly backed with a no-nonsense warranty against defects. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Chota right now. That's Chota, C-H-O-T-A, to support this podcast and the Chota Outdoor family right now anglers coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind delivering excellent coffee to every single angler with a blend for every taste a dry dropper on the go teabag option and a roast sampler you know joe at anglers has you covered you can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste that's anglers a-n-g-l-e-r-s Tim Ray Jeff, Jamie Hickson, and Jared Black are here on the podcast today to share the Echo Fly Fishing story. We hear the story of how Tim Ray Jeff founded Echo, how he built one of the toughest and most durable rods in the world. and We find out why he didn't sell out to the highest bidder and instead went with our two other guests today, Jamie and Jared. We hear the full story today, plus the indoor fly casting yarn rod. This one's going to be big. Tim Ray Jeff, Jamie Hickson, and Jared Black from Echo Fly Fishing dot com. How are you guys doing? Great. Good. How are you today? Good. Good to have you on here. Happy to be here. This is a unique thing because we do mostly audio only and we're getting the video here today. So this is going to be fun. Always uh, nice to mix it up a little bit. But what we have here is uh, we've got a, a few people. Let's go around. Let's do some intros real quick. We'll start at the top. Jared, why don't you give us the intro, who you are, and then we'll circle around. I'm Jared Black. I've been with Echo
2: since the beginning in 2001, and I've known Tim longer than that. And I am the sales manager and one of the owners.
3: Nice. All right. Uh, Jamie? Uh, Yeah, I'm Jamie Ixon. I've been with Echo since like 2005, I think, Um, Known Jared for much longer than that, and been good friends with Tim for a long time. Uh, Yeah, and I'm
1: one of the co-owners as well. Cool, and and Tim, I am Tim. I uh, founded Echo with Jared Catherine in two thousand one, and uh, I am the former owner and the rod designer
0: at Echo. Perfect. This is awesome. So this has been pretty cool for me because I think I've been trying to uh, put this together for a while. You know, Tim, I've been wanting to get you on to hear the story. Your name has come up a lot over the years, Echo, through what you do, and even when you guys sold. I think one of the things that came out was you know, from my perspective, I'm interviewing a lot of people. I think it was really cool. Everybody was like, Hey, you sold to some people that are in your organization, as opposed to probably selling out to some other company where maybe, you know, you could have made more money. I don't know. But I think that a lot of that's the feeling I get that you've kind of moved it on the right way. What's your take on it, Tim? Just tell me from the start, how does it feel? First of all, creating this company and getting to this point where you're selling it? Well, it's awkward
1: because, you know, you build something and then when you start to not age and time out, but when you realize that there's people around you that are as as important to the foundation and the and the company, and, and it, when it comes time to maybe move on and take a different role, you know, do you just pick the highest bidder of a some rich dot com guy that wants to have a fashionable company to own? And there's a bunch of flight companies like that, and so Catherine and I were looking at how are we going to take the next step in our lives. And when it came to selling the company, and you mentioned earlier, you know, we might have gotten more money for it, but we just felt like Jared and Jamie are the heart and soul of the company. I'm the screw off. In fact, they have to keep things going so that I don't screw it up. <laughs> so when it came to selling the company, we talked to them, and they both said we'd love to take over, so to speak, and take it to the next level. So it was a it, it didn't seem like a didn't seem like a big transition. Um, so as a rod designer, I get to do all the fun stuff. They have to do all the hard fittings, yeah. and I think it's a perfect deal for everybody.
0: That's right. That's awesome. And then are you going to be sticking around for a while with the company? Or are you heading out into the sunset?
1: Yeah, I, I have no, I, have, I don't know. I, I don't have no long-term plans other than that. I know Jared and Jamie and I are such close friends. We work well together, and, and my job as rod designer, I think, will require more fishing, So I'm looking forward to just having the opportunity to meet people, find out what makes their fishery tick, find out what would help them. And then Jared, Jamie, and I put all that into a pot and we make Echo food from all of the input. So I think not having to be there as much is actually going to make Echo better because they did all the work anyway. I get to screw off more. Kath and I have a little farm ranch over here in Central Oregon. And I think it'll give me a chance to focus more on what I think I do well. And that's helping people solve problems and designing new rods and products.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that's cool about Echo. I think another unique thing, because you've got a lot of rods out there that are, you know, there are a lot of brands that are pretty spendy. And I think you hear a lot of that about Echo. Like you guys have created this brand and products that are not the highest cost, but they're, from what I can tell, some of the best products out there. And so that's a question I think a lot of people have you know, or thoughts like, wow, you guys are doing this. How have you been able to do that? And why are you guys so different, it seems like, than some of the other higher end? Because it seems like you guys are create a higher end product. And is, was that your initial thought, Tim? I mean, maybe we'll start with Tim getting into this. Did you think, hey, I'm going to create a comparable um, rod for a lower price for the masses sort of thing?
1: Well, when Jared and I and Catherine sat down that first day and we said, what's Echo represent, we sort of realized we didn't want to be the next... Five hundred to thousand dollar rod company. We we wanted to provide something for the the masses, and uh, Jared worked at G Loomis with me for fifteen years or more. Oh wow! And so he he graduated as a Six Sigma expert. That's a efficiency and elimination of error expert. So you know we put all of the resources that we brought to the table, Catherine, Jared, and I, and Julie Landry. But when we looked at the where we wanted to. Target, what was our position? It was actually in distributing fly lines. We started RageF Sports to distribute airflow fly lines. Yeah. June 2001. Guess what happened in September 2001? The world changed. Yeah. People freaked out. It was a crazy time. So, next year, you know, you don't start a ski business and start selling skis in December, you know, in the middle of the season. So, we had a good hard look and we decided to start Echo in early 20, 2002. And at that time, that's when we said, we don't want to compete with Loomis or Thomas and Thomas or Sage and Scott and all these famous American brands. So we made a conscious decision to start it at a lower end and what was affordable. And that was the foundation of, I guess, the concept of what Echo should be. It's not another thousand dollar rod and I can go over later why Echo works, why we can do stuff for 100 to $300 that if you bought it from somebody else, you'd spend double or triple. There's reasons behind that, but I didn't want to go technical right now. Sure. Okay. Yeah, we'll
0: save that for a little bit later in the show. And we've done, that's a cool thing, all over the years we've had so many episodes that we've talked about Echo through other brands. So Airflow was one we had on and we talked about that. I think there was a, a, a connection there, right? I think you helped develop a lot of some of the airflow lines. Is that correct? How did that work with airflow? And then there was a place where eventually things changed, right?
1: Yeah. Before I dropped out of junior college, uh, I studied plastics. And when I had an opportunity in distance competition, airflow had a higher density plastic that they could make. So that meant lines could be skinnier. That meant they went farther. And so when I was at G. Loomis and I said, hey, you know, uh, uh, airflow wants a distributor in the United States. They want Loomis to do it. And then they said, Tim, you'll be the general manager of the distribution side of thing for Airflow. Well, then there was a decision made at the time that Loomis, which was owned by Shimano, would not do fly lines. Mm. I went home that night, said to Catherine, you want to start a distribution company? She said, yes. And so the next day I gave my notice at Loomis, oh, wow. uh, Jerry and I, and <laughs> we, you know, we worked out of our house. And so we just literally decided that Airflow had some material advantages because it's the only polyurethane company in the world. So it was something that we believed in the materials first. Um, and uh, they they drink good beer there, by the way. Yeah, And the UK, that's where Airflow lines are made. So it's kind of the, you know, we didn't just jump in and say, let's build a rod company called Echo. It evolved from distributing Airflow. And of course, 20 years of, or how long we, Jared, how long we, or Jared and Jamie, how long did we distribute? airflow uh yeah just under 20 years because we yeah yeah parted ways in august of 2020 Hmm. airflow was bought by mayfly outdoors who owns ross and abel so that uh well you know it wasn't cool fun but it gave us an opportunity to focus on echo solely but you know fly lines are obviously you know if you want to build a golf club you need a golf ball yeah so if you want to build a good fly rod you know what you got to have something about fly lines and haven't been competitive and guided around the world i had an op- i had a background of knowledge both from the competition side the plastic side so it was a good marriage for us and i contributed to designs but you know i'm just part of the team there was hundreds of great anglers and other people that contributed i was maybe just the right person at the right time in the right place to help out mm, amazing
0: that's a really cool history i had no idea so that's that's kind of the family so well let's take this back because i want to dig more into this history but let's get a little background on you guys too uh jared and jamie just so they know where this came and tim i want to get a little bit of your background and i think what we're going to do is bring you back on for another full-length episode at a later point so we can really dig into all the the dirty uh you know all the good stuff right because we're not going to hit on all today
1: yeah you're gonna have to shave your head dave (laughs) yeah i will i will (laughs) you'd
0: be more aerodynamically efficient i'll I'll do it i'll do it i've got plenty of gray hair coming in now so i'm good shaving my head but until we get there, we, I do want to get geeky at maybe at a later point. But Jared, why don't we start with you? I didn't realize you had been you know, with Echo for so long. So let's talk for just bring us back to fly fishing. You know, um, I always love to start there. Have you been doing this for a long time? Give us a little kind of that airplane uh, pitch of like, how'd you get into fly fishing and how'd you come into running into uh, to Tim here?
2: So I don't remember exactly what I think I got into fly fishing because I lived in a little town industrial town called longview washington and we have a man-made lake there and there was this guy who would catch hundreds of trout using a water bobber and fly and i i was like how is this guy doing this and it wasn't a fly rod it was a spinning rod but it was flies and i slowly evolved from there to throwing hot dog buns on a fly rod to catch carp in the same man made lake Nice. And then I just love fishing so much and those experiences. Jamie was there with me during those days, perp fishing with hot dog buns. I started working at G because of my infatuation with fishing. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but taking on a full time job means you go from fishing every single day to whenever you have time, which is nearly as much. But I don't know. Jamie and I have been fishing buddies since high school at least, maybe before that, we used to still had fish in pants in the snow out on the Elokman River. I think one day we stopped by the Klamath. We saw four or five people in the fly-only section hooking like salmon after salmon. And we would both experimented with fly fishing quite a bit up to that point, but not real fly fishing. And when we saw that, we just kind of took the deep dive and neither one of us had dads who were there who were fishing with us to show us this stuff. We just figured it out on our own and we used our resources. We both Jamie and I worked at Loomis with Tim and we'd get people there to help us, give us ideas, tell us what flies. Uh, So our fly fishing story is kind of tied to the clam river a lot in terms of how we really got into it. And 've both been avid steel adders. we spent times in our lives where we were fishing four or five days a week um, now I don't do it as much it's not as many steelhead um, but i'm trying to get more into the trout fishing and more quality over quantity and and uh, I don't know yeah it's been a roller coaster
0: yeah is that part of that thing that that your longview grew up in but you've got the What's that, where is the the hub? It seems like you got that Washington area. What is that area called where you have all, where you guys, and I'm not even sure where Echo was located. Is that, are you in that same area? Yep, Vancouver, Washington is where Echo's located. And then you got Loomis and Lamaglass Glass out off of the right. and Yep, are there Loomis others and Llama
2: Glass are just north a little bit, and then Lobby's north of there, another 10 miles. So it's all kind of in that same area. In Loomis and Llama Glass, LCI, Tauin, like oh, there's huge history of uh, Rod- companies in that local area, and they all shared rod wrappers and machinery at some certain points. Gary Lemus started at, at Lima Glass, I think, and, all right. and started a few other companies. He still has his own company up there in Woodland. It's a, I don't want to say incestuous industry, but it is a very incestuous yeah. industry. And this region is definitely very
1: rich with uh, rod makers and fly rod makers so dave geographically we're all sort of uh just north of portland oregon yep anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes yeah and uh the famous columbia river it's this big drainage starts in canada and the deschutes river and all these famous rivers all drain right past where jared and jamie grew up up here and that's why the fisheries and everything um uh so so the fisheries are important to everybody around here. But that, so Vancouver, so it goes Portland, you cross the bridge, you hit Vancouver, Washington, and then Woodland, Washington, and up where Jared and Jamie live. So Vancouver was a central point for me working at Woodland, Washington. And Catherine was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. So
0: gotcha.
2: Okay. I'll just add I started working at Loomis because I couldn't get affordable quality fly gear. When I was working at Loomis, the common demographic that was thrown around was your average flying were uh, was retired, white, over 55, and had made six figures a year. Mm. So when we started Echo, that was important to me from that perspective because I wanted fly fishing to be more available to more people.
0: Right. And it's changed a lot now as you look over those 20 years because now, I mean, we've done episodes on everything from bluegill, you know, fly yeah. fishing to you name it. And it's really cool because it seems like these new species just, it's endless and yep. the, where you can fish. You know, we did an episode on uh, carp fishing in mi- the middle of urban Arizona. I think it was That's Phoenix awesome. or something. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, I think it's, and it's a younger demographic is coming in slowly. And so I feel like fly fishing, do you guys feel like it's in a better place than it was 20? Do you guys see, see Absolutely. that Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I love it now. Awesome. All right, Jamie. Well, let's take it back to you. Let's hear your little... It sounds like you probably have a similar story so, as Jared, yeah. but give us... Yeah.
3: Jared and I have very similar stories. You know, Where I came in with Echo was I was working for a steel manufacturer as a project manager. Um, I had a 3D modeling company that I also worked with doing drafting, all that. And I was just burned out. I was almost 30. And I called Jared one day and I said, I'm done. I can't do 60, 80 hours a week anymore. And Jared's like, uh, I think we've got a part-time person we need. I'm like, sweet, I'm on it. I told my wife, I'm like, honey, I got to do something else. And so quit. And I think I made it one day part-time. And then they said, uh, we need you full-time. And it kind of just <laughs> nice. took off from there. And I've been with them for 17 or 18 years, I think. Um, And I think my background in, you know, kind of engineering and just a technical background helps bounce off Tim and We work really well together designing, whether it's rods, reels, um, our work with fly lines. And, you know, I don't fish as much as I should. You know, I have two kids that are fully into soccer and, you know, 15, 13. So it's like we're constantly running. And But I look forward to getting away like this weekend or this week, I guess, you know, hanging out with Tim and Jared and just being able to hit the river again and, you know, seeing what we catch.
0: That's it. Yeah, I know. The kids definitely are a little bit of the X factor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, do you have kids? Yeah, I, did. I They're nine and 11. Okay. Yep. What? Yeah. Yeah. Nine and 11. Well, they're youngsters. Wow. So I'm, uh, yeah, we're right in the middle. We just got off the river. We did a float and uh, it was six days and it was just, they're loving it. They're not fully out there casting the tight loop yet, but they, they love being outdoors. So I'm working on it a little
1: bit. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You did so... a six day float with a nine and an 11 year old. Oh, yeah. 11. Did you have to medicate? Well,
0: the funny thing is, is the the 11-year-old on the first day, I think it was, or the second night, she slipped on a rock and cut her foot open almost to the tendon. Oh, Because, you know, um, yeah, we looked at it and it was like really nasty. We were like, oh my God, do we have to leave? But we patched it up and did her, and she ended up hobbling along with the stick crutch the whole five days and she was still good to go. Wow. Ah, What's her name? Uh, Juna. So June is a tough girl, huh? June is tough, yeah. You must
1: have got that from her mom, right? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> true
0: because I'm I'm pretty wimpy. But uh, but yeah, Megan is like a, a badass. Like you do not want to mess with
1: her. <laughs> so can I tell you just a two-minute story? Yeah. Jared and Jamie, you know, they're at Loomis where the most technologically advanced products were made. Gary talked Boeing into making special carbon fiber runs off their sample line. Oh, wow. Because, you know, generic carbon fibers are thick, clumsy things and they were meant for the aerospace industry. It was developed in in England in 1972 and it finally got low enough price that it could be brought into the States. But the story goes, I was there when Jared, because I was in charge of the engineering uh, and, and Jared comes in and he's like, I need a rod that can cast one and a half buns of weight, hot dog buns. <laughs> so- He took GLX, so we made like a $2,000 rod for Jared, or Jared made his own, you know, the blank stuff my brother was working in, and I sort of got in the middle. But on the logo, it said, you know, carp fishing, and then under the lure weight, it said 1.5 buns. (laughs) That's how much weight Jared needed to throw, to catch. And then he got some, Shimano was the owner of Loomis at that point. So Jared got some chrome-plated custom... Calais casting reel. So here's a guy with yeah. like two thousand dollars worth of gear <laughs> in Sacajewea Lake fishing with carp with a Amazing. Bun. Yep, <laughs> <Yeah>. a <bun. laughs> with bun. Night
0: fishing for carp,
2: right? Oh, God.
1: God, I wish we had a photo of you with that. No
2: kidding,
0: you guys <laughs> out there. So how is that even possible for those that don't know carp? You know, because you hear about them as this like the bone fish of freshwater and stuff. How are you catching them on a, on a hot dog bun?
2: So the lake, They uh, um, people throw bread to the ducks all day long. And the carp are pretty sedentary during the daytime. They just sit on the surface and sand or whatever it is carp does do. I have no idea. But at nighttime, they'll cruise the shoreline and look for bread that the ducks haven't got to. Wow. And once we figured this out, because we've been trying to catch the biggest fish in this lake for a long time, and it was full of carp.
0: Um, once we figured it out, it was like, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and is there a hot dog bun fly out there anywhere? Uh, we've tried them, but
2: eventually we just resorted to, uh, threading hot dog buns on the double snail hooks. I, and we've done it with fly rods. We've done it with, you only get one haul with the hot dog bun on the line. Yeah. There's no false.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. This is cool. All right, so that's a little bit of the background with you guys. So Tim, you've got a background as well. Maybe give us a little high level. What's your first memory? Take us back real quick, and just, and we'll follow up with this on some more of your history.
1: But you've been doing this since day one, right? Uh, I grew up in I grew up in a very um, non fly fishing town. It's in San Francisco, California. But weirdly, five minute walk from my house, uh, I lived a hundred yards from Golden Gate Park. There's a famous club. It's the Golden Gate Angling and Casting Club where the first foundations of a lot of modern fly fishing equipment were developed, but it's a club where you can go there. It's a public place. It's, it's, uh, it would be like living near you know Flushing Meadows or, or uh, any of these, uh, you know, it'd be like living near Augusta, Georgia where you're a golfer. So by accident, we stumbled into that. We were already fishing for perch and smelt. With hand lines and prawns that we now eat because they're too expensive but we would fish in the bay san francisco bay and then do other fishing trips and i don't want to bore everybody with what the background of our fishing was but it was that high level fly fishing that we took all the things that we learned in golden gate park at the casting ponds where some of the famous fly fishing and fly casting and spin fishing and spin casting stuff happened and then once I started fly fishing, I realized how it's a lot more exciting than staring at a tip of your rod, waiting for a bobber to go down, um, or mid bait fishing. So it was not that we became snobs, but I think my brother and I quickly adopted fly fishing is what we enjoyed the most. So it's because of my proximity to the Golden Gate Angling and Casting Club that I think I'm a fly fisherman and it's spawned some of the best casters in the world. My brother was a world casting champion as a young man. So when I was 13 years old, it was, Hey, I want to go skateboarding. I want to go surfing. I want to go throw rocks at, you know, rocks, uh, water balloons at, at cars driving by the city, <laughs> you know, just a little kid. Instead, it was like, no, you're going to the park and practice with your older brother. Oh, wow. So it's because of that, that I got into the sport and then the sport burnt I, at 25, I was burnt out. So it'd be like, if you were a hunter and you just archered, you know, just for target practice. So I dropped out of the competition world and got into what I do now um, and gui- guided and construction work and stuff. But overall, it was probably I think, and Jared and Jimmy been on me for thirty years. It's probably that that idea that oh, there's a competition caster, you know, the Ray Jeff brothers, and that's all we do. But it's I don't do competition. I haven't for thirty something years. But it did allow me to learn how to cast pretty okay. Right.
0: casting. that that's the amazing thing is that, uh, casting is always that struggle. It's, it's that thing that I think new fly anglers are coming to, they think that's the thing that keeps them away from it. Right. Because they're like, wow, how do I cast that thing? It seems so challenging. I mean, for you, you know, for you guys, what do you think about? Like, who is your customer? You know, your target customer, like, are you kind of doing this for everybody out there? New people? Like, how do you look at that? Or how, how have you looked at that in the past?
3: I mean, yeah, we definitely look at, you know, the new to kind of intermediate angler trying to get them into the sport, not only by price point, but also by the actions that Tim has helped us develop, you know, actions that work good for the widest range of casting styles instead of just focusing in on narrow bands, you know, whether it be fast action, lots of power where you gotta have high line speed. Tim's always said, I want to make a good rod for the average guy to be able to go out and throw and not be frustrated. And that's kind of where we want to be. Um, Not that we don't make some of the other fast action, powerful rods, but the bulk of our lineup is kind of that medium fast, medium fast plus average power rods, which work well for most people. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I have a number of, I mean, I've been using Echo for a while. I can't remember the first echo rod I had, but, you know, we've got a trip. I think we talked to you guys first. We're, we're working with Pete um, you know Erickson and Pete told a few of the stories about that. I mean, I've been, had a cool opportunity through the podcast to meet a bunch of people. And I've always reached out to say, okay, we're, I'm going to put together some trip or some program. I want to find the best person in that space. Cause I want our listeners to have the best chance. And so that's what we did on that little giveaway event. You know, we gave away the shadow X, right. Is is one of those rods. How did that come to be? How did Pete, I can't remember that story, like how did the Shadow X come to be and why Why Euro? And then and then after that, like what other rods are you guys looking at going into other niches?
1: Well, I think Jamie said it well that, you know, we decided when we weren't going to make $500 to $1,000 rods, <clears throat> well then that means the materials are uh, potentially less, um, not refined, but the material... Materials become an issue when you are uh, trying to keep your price point down. We can't use super high modulus, these super thin aerial fiber weight, these like super fine structures that are expected at, uh, at, to shave weight out of a rod. But conversely, just like if I, I think a good analogy is a bike analogy. If, I, if you're going to buy your 15-year-old daughter or son a bike, are you going to buy a custom-made carbon fiber frame? You know, actually these lighter frames, if you hit a curb with a $15,000 track bike, it explodes, but you can take that pre-made heavier frame and drive off a curb and it's fine. So within the controls of what we can do for how a rod is designed, each time we go for something, we say, why is it important? Then we say, what can we do for this customer? So if it's a hundred dollar kid's rod, we don't use high modulus material because it's going to break. It's not as flexible. If we want a rod, that's going to be a middle price performance rod, but then we want, so each family of rods, we decide why, and then we decide how we're going to design it. And then we end up with what we do. But to tie into what you just asked, when we started looking at what's the next rod or working on product, I had given Pete Erickson some fly casting lessons, not that he needs them; he's one of the top hangers in the world. And he was the head of the fly fishing team. And he goes, geez, Tim, they make these rods. Can you do that? So we have six factories that we use, Jared and Jamie. Jamie's been with us in a lot of these trips to Korea and China. Jared and Jamie and I sat down and said, well, if we're going to make a competition Euro nymphing rod for Pete Erickson to use at these championships, are we going to make it standard material? And on super long light rods, that's when it's a real advantage to use thinner, better quality yeah. and stiffer fibers. Well, you can't make a super thin... Super high quality rod, fibered in a cheap factory that's cranking them out. It'd be the attention to detail, the tolerances are too tight. So that's when we decided to make an affordable Euro nymphing rod, and it did well. But then Euro nymphing took off, like yeah. everybody, the trout angles.
2: That's yeah, pretty good. Dude. the f- The first Shadow rod was the Shadow PE. Yeah, and we couldn't sell it. We couldn't sell it at retail. We sold most of them to pros and and usa teams and so we thought uh, eh, you know when he, he wanted to do the next version we were like the shadow two we were like oh well, yeah okay it sold enough yeah and then it exploded like wow what like happened you couldn't like, keep up with
0: demand it was just going oh yeah so what our sales went up 500 percent, six months per yeah. year yeah. wow yeah so what was that what happened there why why did because you still hear some i mean i've had people on this talk way down on competition fishing you know we've had that there's those conversations I think that's going away I think people realize it's just fishing but what was the thing that really catapulted euro nymphing into where it is any idea
2: I think it's just so efficient and you're always going to have those guys who want to catch the most fish possible I mean we've gone out and done it I like to swing flies I won't even indicator fish for trout it's too much work for me so euro nymphing is hard Like, it's a lot of work.
0: Bear Vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. This, in turn, keeps your food safe, keeps the bears safe, and keeps you safe. I've got a classic story that I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. When I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool. this thing is legit it definitely is one of my this might be my favorite feature is is the camp stool. you know i love a good a good chair out there check in with the crew at bear vault at wetflyswing.com slash bear vault that's bear vault b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t okay back to the show Going back to the casting, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, are you even I always have that joke is like, are you even what is fly fishing? Do you have to be
1: casting a fly line for it to yeah. be fly fishing? And T- you're on an if and you're not Tim really brings this up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when Pete wanted the next level of performance, that's when you asked about the Shadow X and that's our top of the line, you're anything, Rod. That's made it a factory in Korea where we use super high end components, super thin, and it, that's why it's double the next price. So what we did is we have these six factories. So we choose the factory based on this real set of specific criteria. Why is this rod important? Well, if it's important for the super high-end, super technical nymphing where it reacts quicker. I mean, these people measure how many fish bounce because of the bounce of the rod. So it's that top 1% of competitive anglers. They want the highest performance. So we use the materials from different factories. And excuse, we use different factories because of their quality control and the materials. But in terms of what euro nymphing is for the average person who gets into it, I think Jared and Jamie chime in here or, or Dave, don't you yep. all agree that you catch more trout euro nymphing than you did trying to drive fly fish? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. How about if they nymphed an indicator? Yes. Right. Yep. They catch more fish. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. If that's all you care about is catching fish, you could do that with a worm and, a, you know, so for me, Dave, you know, the aesthetics of casting. So I wonder if the four of us could agree on what is fly fishing. Yeah, that would be great. I have my own definition, obviously. Yeah, it's when the line is what
2: propels the fly, not the fly propelling. I
1: I think there's a better way to say that. So here you go. Ready? Sorry. Yeah, I think about this S-H-I-T a lot. (laughs) (laughs) If, and I have to premise it with it. Because everybody who's bone fished or carp fished with a heavy fly, if you got a bead-headed knit, if you get a woolly bugger and your first beginning cast goes 12 feet and it plops in the water and the fish takes it, will you fly fishing at that point? So I say, if it is the intent, if at some point you intend the fly line to pull the lure through the air, that's fly fishing. Mm. If at, at throughout the whole day you never expect anything from the line other than to follow a weighted lure, then for me, that doesn't feel like fly fishing. But if you're fishing in competition at the World Championships, they have a definition. There has to be fly line. You can only use this much leader. Yeah. And so their fly line is thin. It's like the running line on a three-weight forward. So you... Can achieve some of the stuff like Tenkara doesn't have a fly line, but it still rolls through the air. So, the hardcore people that I'm going to piss off by using that definition are saying, No, we're nymphing. It's still fly casting. Good for you. None of us are snobs. i you're, okay, Jamie. we all deer fish too. Um, it, it really doesn't. Yeah. You know, you're talking about bun chuckers here. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We don't <laughs> care. Right. <laughs> it's just, are you having fun? But the aesthetics of the line rolling back and forth through the air is, what hooks us all. We do that. Dave, what's your definition of fly fishing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the conversation we've had on here before. I think it it is, it feels like it is the fly line, you know, the casting it's like the river runs through it. Right. I mean, think of that movie, how that hooked everybody with whoever was doing the shadow cast or whatever. Right. It's like, that's the allure. And then the dry fly, right. Everybody thinks of the dry fly fishing. If you're new to it, catching a fish on the surface. And I, we all go through this evolution and I've done the same thing. I used to be a steelhead fanatic. That's all I think about. But now I'm thinking more like, well, I'd love to catch everything, Yeah, you know, and and I don't care the euro. I'm doing a trip where we did that trip with you guys, you know, we're heading over to uh, the Henry's Fork to focus on euro nymphing, right? And some people are going to be like, what? You're not going to fish for dries on the Henry's Fork? But, you know, we got these people that are just stoked about euro. They want to learn from the best. And that's why we're doing it. So, yeah, but that is my, I think, casting a fly line. You think you've got to be casting a fly line. Otherwise, if you're not, you're just, you're doing something else, right?
1: We don't know. (laughs) <laughs> there is no I'll tell you what there is a definition if you go to the world fly fishing championships that you have to be fly fishing you can't put a spinning reel with only thin monofilament on a fly rod and do it so there yeah you know it's just it pushes the boundary of fly fishing and it was the issue I guess happened when Europe uh, you know some of these poorer countries Czechoslovakia Poland countries yeah. like that they were winning fly fishing contests with no fly line just monofilament so then they went, you know, we got to, we got, right. We got to tone this down. down. So, so, but, you know, again, we're just, we're happy people are outside and fishing. Yeah. Like yeah. They're catching more fish. Cool. They want to have yep. more fun with the line rolling through there. Cool. Yeah. It's all, you know, it's just in beauty and the beholder.
0: Yeah. Do you guys look at it like, I think of Loomis, right? They've been out there. You work for them. You know about how that whole, it seems like Loomis, I'm not even sure. I mean, I guess they've always been a conventional fishing and fly has been there, right? And a lot of brands, TFO, a lot of brands do that where they've got their fly, but the conventional draw uh, drives it. Do you guys ever look at that like long-term say, hey, are we going to be maybe moving, doing some other stuff within the, the fly fishing or the, the outdoor space, right? Or do you see this as a path forward of like, we have our fly gear, our fly rods, and this is where we're sticking?
3: You know, we've looked at it before and Tim and I have tried it. The conventional market's a hard market to try to rationalize getting into. I mean, you can walk into Walmart and pick up a $50 rod that's going to suit you just fine. There's no price point for us where it makes sense to kind of get in. And we've tried, we've thought about it, we've ran the numbers over and over. And at the end of the day, it's just, You know, we're fly fishing more centric, not that we wouldn't look at other things, you know, whether it be Tenkara or whatever the next thing is. But currently, yeah, I don't see us moving into the conventional space. It's just it's a crowded
1: space.
2: It is. And it's hard to it's hard to compete with the Akumas of the
1: world. Right. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it was a business decision not to get into gear because our our rep in Canada said, guys, you know, there's a huge opportunity here. And, uh, like, someone Jamie said, we looked into it, it just seemed like, what do we represent? You know, we have a mission statement We're and the mission statement doesn't say anything that you can't catch a fish without a fly rod in your hand, but it just was a, an entirely different market and an entirely different distribution network. And then you're competing, like you said, with all these amazingly large corporations that dump a bunch of money into it. We're just a small company. We, we do this because it's what we love. Um, we would do this, well, now that... <laughs> now that I get to goof yeah. out more. I get to do more of this fun stuff. But you know, I would I would argue that if there was a way for us to help people enjoy fishing, we would consider it. But it's at this point, it's all based on the fly rod. It's on the fly rod. Perfect. What, what yeah, was? I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Jake.
3: Oh, I was going to say just for a background. When we say we're small, we're small. You're looking at almost half of our workforce right here. Yep. Yeah. yep. We we run with six people. And, you know, we, Jared's done a great job just streamlined. He's wrote a lot of our, you know, programs that interface with our shipping programs and everything like that. We do everything we do to stay small and run as tight as we can. That's, that's just where we are. We don't have, you know, I guess the pockets per se who to... can be bit. Well, that's what I was going to say. With what Tim said earlier, that's
0: my guess is like, how do you produce a rod for under $500 or whatever? My guess is that's it. You don't have 50 people or a hundred people on your staff.
3: Right. Yeah. We got to keep our overhead as low as possible
1: and just watch everything we do. Yeah. You don't see, then. you know, one of the things that we realize is fly fishing is a mentoring sport. How many of you go online, buy skis and take a chairlift and figure it out? Like you, there's somebody that helps you. Yeah, and, and most sports are that way, and, and for us, we focus purely on the shops. They're your first point of contact. And for a shop, arguably, I mean, you know if you're getting a beginner golf club set or a beginner bicycle, does it matter if it's the top brand in the world? No, what matters is is it quality? is it designed well? is it figured out for that person? So when we started our company, it was deliberate action on our part, the three of us and Catherine, that we support fly shops. We want that to be the point of contact for people getting into the sport. Whether you're traveling and your first trip to Montana and you go to West Yellowstone, there's seven fly shops. So we want them to be closely tied to the shop. The shop's going to help you figure out what to wear, what to use, where you're fishing, how to do it. They'll even give you casting lessons. They'll set you up with a guide. So that connection with the shop meant our number one goal is to make sure that our products do well in the store to help people we're not trying to blow stuff out online and sell direct to the consumer and that's been one of the reasons why our prices are what they are we want the shops to be able to go well if you don't want to spend a thousand dollars you know some people just don't have that coin so here's a good rod it's echo it's reliable it has all these other it performs well so that's kind of one of the things that we take pride in is that go to a shop ask them what yeah. rod to buy and hopefully they say I- and i think they do i think that
0: from what i've seen and heard it's like that is the way it's working people are saying and not only that they just say it's equal especially durability and i've seen tim you're you've had a couple of videos on there where you're breaking the rod with a you know with some equipment Maybe talk about that a little bit. I want to get into a few of the products, like the product lines and kind of where you guys are focusing. But how do you guys make this thing so durable? Because from what I hear, and I have rods, I've never broken one of your rods. In fact, I will. I don't want to uh, rip on G. Loomis too much. But I will say one of my best, my most expensive rods, I still have. It's a custom G. Loomis rod that I was given. I broke it. I mean, I broke it a long time ago. And actually, one of the rods that my first steelhead rod ever given by my dad was an old lamb glass, old noodle. And I mean, that thing was a noodle. And it's funny because it actually is pretty fun casting sinking lines with it, but I never broke that, and I've trashed on that rod. So why is it that some rods break really easy and some rods don't? Is that really a straightforward answer when you look at that? And is that what you guys think about on, or how, or how do you think about durability?
1: Well, I mean, you know, Jamie, Jared, you guys can chime in. But when we look at who's going to use the rod and how they're going to use it, that helps us steer what materials are going to be used. Then we have to know how much it sells for. So we can't use the lightest, most sophisticated carbon fiber on a $100 rod, can't afford to. But what we do is we have really specific brake strength targets on all of our rods. And we choose different factories. Like I said, we have six different rod companies that manufacture for us. And you know, some of these rod companies make it for the other brands that you can see in shops. But what we do is we hold them to a higher standard. We say, this rod has to break at five pounds in a vertical position, like a Really ugly break. So, uh, Jerry, Jamie and I typically will throw some ideas together based on Jared's request. Jared says, Hey, the shops are looking for a new bluegill rod for kids. They need to be able to fold the rod over their shoulder, snag a tree. And then he says, Can you guys do this? And so, Jamie and I work the numbers and get samples and we pick actions and powers. Then we, so together, the three of us figure out whether we can do it. And then we break them. So we have a brake test machine with, you know, we used to put Jared in a welding mask and have him lift up and break. break. <laughs> the forklift brake. Yeah, the forklift. That's what I saw, the forklift. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, we've we've come a long way. But the idea is that, interestingly, Gary Loomis put this well. He said, if a rod's too strong, it's not good. And you'd say, well, wait a minute. In fact, we had ion, our original ion rod uh, was the reason I say they're too strong. They're heavier than they should have been. You know, if you're making two casts a day at a tuna, it doesn't matter, it could weigh 50 pounds. If you're casting long all day, you want to have that rod not vibrate too much because it's too heavy. So when we pick a rod and you ask your question, was wire rods, echo rods famous for their durability and their strength, is we fine the what a rod should break at. So we made ours a little stronger than normal for two reasons. The first year we made rods, we only had one model and I thought if it's somebody's first rod, the worst thing that can happen is they, you know, they hit their rod with a bead-headed nymph or they're stuck in a tree or they're snagged and they break the rod. So we wanted them strong for that. The second choice was the other reason people buy Echo rods is maybe it's a backup. You know, Dave, you're headed the Bahamas and you got your thousand dollar, you know, whatever Grand X, right. and they go, dude, you need this, you need another eight, a backup. Rod. You can buy a thousand dollar backup rod. So people were buying Echo as a backup rod. So a beginner rod or a backup rod, what's the worst thing that can happen on a $1,000 a day trip to the Bahamas is your backup rod breaks. Now you're screwed. So we over-designed, them. we just made them heavier and that's the yep. secret. It's making them thicker and heavier. Well, so we got a reputation for indestructibility, but then people go, you know, they should be a little lighter. I, not, I want it <laughs> to pick off there, you know, and it's yeah. like, what's that famous expression for bikes? Light, cheap, or strong? Pick two. Right. Fly rods, light, Cheap, cheap or strong. Or strong. If you want a light, strong rod, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. So we went strong and affordable instead of we're cheap. And that meant they our rods generically were not as light. So we lost some market share, but people got a chance to rely on our rods. So we're always on that little stronger side of thing.
0: Yeah. So it's a give and take. It's not that you can just have, you can't have your cake and eat it or whatever, right? It's like you literally have to choose. You can't have the lightest rod and the strongest rod. Like that's not really.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's a great, that's a, I think that, that, and I don't know who's Trek or one of the bike companies light. Have you heard that before? Light, cheap or strong, Dave? No. Light, cheap or strong. Pick two. Can't have all three. I think that Jared, Jared and Jamie, isn't that good for rods too? It is. And nothing
2: has changed in materials technology in the last 20 years that has changed that. And maybe it will in the future.
0: What about the, uh, I've heard about this in a little bit. What's the new car? Is it not, not nano? Isn't there some new thing people have been talking about that's out there? What is it? Yeah. Graphene. uh, Graphene is what I've heard about. Or or nano. I don't even know what the difference is, but I mean, we all go back. We all know the history of the you know, bamboo to fiberglass to graphite and now back to kind of, well, not back, but fiberglass is around now. Um, but is that it? Is there some, you know, silver bullet that's going to be the next thing that takes away what you guys do and makes or
1: increases what you do? So not that not that we see, just as a rough idea. And at Loomis, they were the first people to use less glue. Hmm. So a fly rod is made from pre-impregnated cloth. It's either graphite or fiberglass. On a typical rod, if you take away the paint, the handle, the glue, the guides and thread, and you just weigh it, it's about 80% fiber. Well, let's say 70% fiber, 30% glue. Okay? Mm-hmm. So of the fiber, 80% goes long ways, 20% goes around it. Mm. Because if you didn't have anything going around it, it only went lengthwise. And you say, Look, I made a really light rod. It crushes. It'll collapse under its own weight. So back when I was at Loomis, Loomis broke the 30% glue barrier. Now they're down to 20%. So if I could shave weight off a rod, that's how you improve its performance. It's like a diving board that's lighter. It lets it, when you flex it, it comes up, it throws you farther, and it vibrates less after you're gone. So our or the holy grail in fly rods and any other fly fishing rod is how light can I make it? So if you said, Oh, I got a new fiber, well, shoot, a third of t- 30% of it's glue. And of the straight fibers, you still need stuff going around. So when you yeah. get a fiber that's 10% better, it makes the rod 2% lighter. It's not this big, oh my goodness, we went from a metal diving board to a ground. Diving board like fiberglass
0: to graphite. We didn't go fiberglass to graphite.
1: Correct. Yeah. And that changes, you know. And so that's when when you buy a thousand dollar fly rod. I have this whole checklist of stuff, but we've tried to stick with what can production do on a consistent basis. The idea of graphene, it's uh, there are tubular fibers grown atom by atom of carbon, and they're called nanotubes. That's the space age crazy stuff of 20 years from now. Um, It got coined as graphene, and there's manufacturers in other countries saying our rods are made from graphene. It's not nanotubes. Nanotubes are the strongest carbon structure in the world. So without geeking out, there is not any new, and Jared's statement was right, there's nothing profound that is coming out in the next few years where you can get rid of the glue and the, all that other stuff and make rods half
0: the weight. That makes sense. And you guys, well, let's talk a little, just a little about the lineup briefly with what, what you have, because I think you guys are, you have fiberglass too right now, is that correct? Oh yeah, yep. Let's talk about from the start, what was the first, when you got into it, what was that first rod? And then And then talk about the progression of where you came to, where we are, and then let's start there and see where that takes us. And I'm not sure who wants to take this one. We started with the Echo Classic rod, our
2: original green rod. I think it was, I don't even remember how much it was. Was it 99,
0: Tim? I think it was 120 bucks. It was at the series of like, what, four weight through eight weight or something like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And we still, there. some guy on Reddit posted
2: a picture of one like a day ago, the fly fishing subreddit, and, and
0: with uh, salmon. I was impressed because that rod's 20 years old. <laughs> Well, how long do you expect? Here's a question quick before we go on this. You buy this fly rod, say a new rod nowadays from you guys or really whoever. How long do you expect that rod? I mean, take care of it and all that stuff. I mean, it's a lifetime sort of rod. Is that what you expect out of these things?
2: Yeah, if you take care of it. I mean, carbon fiber, there's a reason they use it in aerospace. Um, It's a very strong material unless you throw things at it. So it'll last as long as it doesn't get hit. It doesn't break down
0: yeah, I was going to say, and then the other, the other question I was going to have for you on this, Jared, is like, how many returns do you guys see? And then out of those returns, are the majority of them mostly people like hitting it with their woolly, with their beadhead or car door sort of stuff?
2: So we don't call them returns anymore because for the most part, people don't have to send the rods back. They just, they can just order the parts or um, submit a claim, and we'll evaluate the claim with them and then send the part out to them. There's really no reason to send the rods back anymore. Um, because our tolerance is good enough that they shouldn't have to, and it gets too expensive for people to ship stuff back to us and for us to ship back to them. Um, Jamie probably knows better than I what the actual defective warranty rate is. But for the most part, I mean, people break tips. That's the most fragile part. And people just order
0: tips directly online from us. Um, we do get some warranty submissions, um, can you right away see? Can you see right away when you get it? Or, well, I guess you're not seeing the rods, but do you guys have a good feel for which ones? I'm sure you get people that are like, hey, this rod was defective, but they probably nicked it.
2: Right. And you see that a lot as, as we've gotten into the um, more advanced materials, the higher modulus rods, like the, um, the urine rods, stuff like that. They wanted to slide as, as possible, but they also want to be throwing a few ounces of lead
0: on the end of it. Oh, right. Yeah. So you're seeing more with the shadow wax, you probably see more. More of that, exactly. Yeah. So the, those get hit by flies.
2: um I mean, for a tubular structure, they can flex a lot and they can handle a big load. But the second you hit a limb or something, um, eventually it's going to break at that point, yeah. probably. So, yeah, yeah, nice. But we we don't see too many. We don't have. I don't know, Jamie. What do you think? For <laughs> it's I, less I than one percent.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for true ex probably less than one percent. I mean. Everybody who breaks their rod, not everybody, I mean, but majority of people think that it was the rod's fault. Something happened. It has to be defective. The way graphite works is if it's going to fail, it's going to fail the first time it's put under load. If there's a defect in it, a wrinkle in the graphite, the claw, it's going to fail right then and there as soon as it's bent for the first time. If it can hold the load, if you go out fishing, you fish all day, catch some fish, that rod, if it breaks down the road, it's probably not a defect. I mean, it already held its load. It's good. It, I mean, they're thin walled tubes that we take out into the woods with us. You don't realize when you nick it, oh, you no. know, or you don't think twice about a fly hitting it or setting it down on a rock. Oh, yeah.
0: Or you're walking or you're under the trees, combat, trying to get in right. a spot and dragging your rod through, mm. you know, I mean, all yep. of that. Yeah.
3: You know, the biggest eater of fly rods is definitely either tailgates, car doors, or kids, (laughs) Uh, you know, and 90% of people are like, this is what happened. And they're just happy to get back on the water. Uh, It's a very few percent that, you know, even question it nine times out of 10, they're like, you're right. I fished this rod for 300 days. Something along the way probably happened to it. So, I mean, why rods don't have, going back to your original question, like a life span, it depends how they were treated through their life and how many days you got fished. And if you feel, you know, did you fish that rod and did it treat you well? You know what? Maybe, you know, we'll help you get back on the water. Or if you're just happy at what's happened, you know, go to your fly shop, buy another rod. Now you've had that one for 10 plus years. Let's get you into the newest one. Let's, you know, upgrade you and get going. Dave, you've broken rods
1: before, right? Yeah. Uh. In the, the last five rods you've broken, how many of those five did you break the tip? Hmm. Yeah, pretty
0: much. I think all of them probably. I think right. there I you mean, go. Yep. One was in a car door, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it could have been hit by an nymph and set the hook and stuff. So that's why Jamie, Jared, and I put together this program where you just you you go online, we send you a tip. You don't even have to find postage and deal with all that. Stuff. Oh wow. And they're super affordable. Like on our hundred dollar rod, what's a tip cost you guys? Twenty dollars. Twenty bucks. So for twenty bucks we'd mail you a tip. Oh, that's cool. And that's one of the and you don't have to you know, you can call us, but if you're if it's eight PM, you got home and you're like, dang it, I don't know what happened. Um, we'll just we got another part coming to you. And we, we pride ourselves on having rods, tips, and parts around for years after the rod's been discontinued. We don't have parts from a twenty year old rod, but if it's five years old, we try and have parts there. And Jamie does a great job of analyzing sales with Jared so that when we do move on and develop a new series of rods, we do our best to project before we discontinue it to have enough parts to last years. But, you know, it's people break tips, that's what that's what happens. And every rod has a break strength. You know, you can't lift a hundred pounds with a five way trout rod. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'd say our goal with warranty is to have a quick turnaround time for people uh and make the process simple and easy and for most
0: people, you know, not having
2: to send it in and just being able to order it to. Right, or
0: wait, because you hear those stories about people send them in and then it takes months and months to get the rod back. Yeah, absolutely. So that's an awesome service you guys have. What is, you know, so you break a rod, and part of the thing with you break a rod, especially if you break in the top of the tip, I mean, if you were good, you could repair it, right? There are ways to fix a rod, but what if on that tip, if you break off, say, six inches or a foot off of that nine foot rod, could you still potentially throw another tip top on there and fish that? What would that do to the rod action? It would significantly alter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you could still fish it. It just probably wouldn't be that fun to fish. What would it do? It would just make it like you just don't have the. I don't know. What would that be? What would the feeling be that you would miss?
3: It's probably going to make it feel stiffer, uh, and you know, because now you're working with the shorter lever and most of the flex as you come down the tip, it gets less flexy. That's just how it, is. so you're making your tip stiffer, which makes it a slower action rod. It's going to feel a little slower and probably more powerful, but it is going to feel lighter in the hand because you've lopped off six inches or whatever. Um, it's going to feel like it recovers quicker, you know, just less swing weight out there. But yeah, guys, I get pictures all the time of guys who broke their tip top, just broke it down to the next guide so they cons- yep. can continue fishing <laughs> that day. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> it's like it, it was a little harder to load, but they still fish, they catch fish. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, Dave, you're right. You could just snap that little section off, but farther get down you go, you'll need a heavier fly line. So if you take five-foot rod and you break six inches off the tip, that thicker tip and the shorter lever, put a six-plate line on it, maybe you're Okay. Yeah, it I got probably you. doesn't have the complete seal on that curve, but you know you don't have to lose your, it won't ruin your trip and uh, won't make you happy either, but you can just glue a new tint on there and use a heavier line.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Iglehart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. I've been using these Stonefly Nets for quite a while now and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly s-t-o-n-e-f-l-y You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. Okay. And uh, going back to, I mentioned my old lamb glass rod, you guys probably, yeah, I mean, Tim, I'm sure you remember that rod it, or that type of rod, but it was early. I don't even know. I mean, it was, it's probably from the eighties, my guess, you know, one of those rods, but it was kind of a noodley rod, right? It had a lot of flex. I guess that's, I don't know if that's the medium or slow. Do you have a mix of, you know, super fast, fast, medium action rods, or do you guys, are your rods mostly kind of a certain type of rod? And and do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, as far as seems yeah. like, Yeah.
1: Well, the two things that people feel most in a rod, besides the length, is the action and then the stiffness or the power. When we make rods that are stiffer, if we made the whole rod stiff, let's say a trout rod, let's say a normal trout rod that's a five weight is a 5.0. We actually make a decimal point chart. I think we have it on the website. I don't remember. Yeah. But a. First 30 feet of a five-weight line has a specific weight. It's 140 grains. A six-weight's 160. So if I made a rod that's a five and a half weight, it would be 150. So another way to think about this is first, how stiff is this rod? And then the second thing you feel is where's the action? Is it a fast action, extra fast action, medium action, slow action? And what Jamie said earlier is that if we think a beginner is going to throw 30 feet, we make the rod with a big sweet spot around 30 feet. Hmm. So they feel more of the rod bend. It's got, it's more forgiving at that distance. So that would be like a medium fast action rod. If you get a super technical fisherman, let's say Dave, you're going to the Bahamas, you could throw 100 fish or spooky, you have to throw 100 feet. Well, you didn't start with 90 feet and shoot to 100. You had to start with the line in your hand. So if I made a 8.9 weight, super stiff eight weight rod, then we put a softer tip on there so you can initiate the cast with less line out. Mm. And then on that final cast, when you've got 50 and you shoot to 100, you're bending that 8.9 weight lower section. So within our family of rods, you can see, we put a chart on the website and we talk about how stiff it is. And then that's in a decimal point. It's normal five weights, a 5.0, a medium five weights, 5.3 or 4. Uh, if you, if you get a, a streamer five weight rod is probably a 5.8. And then we determine the action by, are you going to start with a little bit of line? Are you going to start like swinging a streamer line? You might have line out already. So that's when it's kind of complicated.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of, with what you guys do, I mean, you can meet any angler it sounds like depending and that's kind of how you do it. Well let's let's go back to the rod classes on what we have. So we start out with that first one. What did that progression look like? How did you guys choose the next lineup and maybe talk about that and then what your lineup looks like now because I know you've got spay, right? you you guys it seems like you kinda of have it all or or what don't and then also what don't you have out there? What do you you know what's coming? Yeah.
2: I mean we always try to do like a niche project once a year. So we try to add new kind of niche rods ep- pretty regularly and then we do regular updates too just you know when either when sales slow down or um uh, our product's just been out there for a long time we try to update it um but i mean after the echo classics we did the echo twos which had two tips They came with a distance and accuracy tip um and that kind of put into the public light the difference between power and action because thanks to marketing people tend to confuse the two um and it it got to where where we were fielding a lot of calls (laughs) about about what the difference between the two tips were and and why they matter
0: right like the average person couldn't even tell the difference almost
2: i think a lot of people but I don't know that they understood why one tip was the distance tip and the other was the accuracy tip because it should have been backwards in their mind because people think of a more powerful rod as a faster rod, but that's not necessarily true Uh, because for years people were told the faster it is, the more powerful it is. And that's, that's not really how that works. The power comes from the stiffness in the lower portion of the rod. So I think after the Echo Two, we scrapped the two different tips idea. Uh, we also started doing—I don't know—what did we do after Echo Two? We didn't just jump into. We did some sp- the spay rods. That's when mm. space started getting big. That was yeah, yeah.
1: Well, this would be in the in the early two thousands when we came up with the classic. Then we said, "Well, we'll make some single handed steel head rods. We'll make some spay rods, and then we started making." It was common for us to have a large family called the Classic or the, you know, the Blue Rod. And then we'd make panfish all the way up to spay rods and then Blue, fish, you know, 12 weights for tarpon. And um, so that early transition from the single family of rods. And then would you guys agree maybe near the end of like 2005 to 2010 is when we started making more specific? Families, the bass rods, yeah. yeah, or the bone, you know, or the saltwater flats series, or that's when the euro nymphing kind of thing. This, yeah, while you could use a dry fly with this rod, it's specific for euro nymphing.
3: Yeah, even kind of the Echo Three was our first, where we said, okay, the freshwater, the three weight through six weight are green for freshwater, and then we made the saltwater versions, which were blue you know, from another six weight all the way up through a 12 weight. Yeah. So that's kind of the first time that we said, okay, we should start differentiating what's different about them or how we're
1: doing it. And Dave, there's the push and the pull method for product.
0: Hmm. The push
1: and pull. push method is we come up with something awesome. We're so excited. Oh my goodness, look, you know, you can throw under trees. It'll, you know, open your beer. It does all yeah. this incredible <laughs> stuff. And then we push it to the market. We didn't. We show it to them, and then they go, "Oh, I always wanted to do that." And then the pool method is, and this is where you know Jared and Jamie are good at this, uh, better than me. That, that they follow the trends. They get communications from the shops, or customers call in. They go, "Oh my gosh, that carbon, you know, one hundred seventy dollar trout rod is the best thing in the world, but I need one for carp. Can you make a one hundred eighty dollar carp rod that does the same thing, but it needs to be in an eight weight or seven weight?" that's the pull method where they they're pulling products from us and you know you guys you know in the last 10 years is it 50 50 half the time we're responding to demand in the market or is it more often than not we just come up with some crazy in our heads or crazy stuff we come up with crazy stuff and then people go oh my goodness i didn't know i could use that or you know the pull
3: you know i i think it's a combination of both i mean it's probably 50 50 we have I mean, with Tim being the personality that he is and the friend group that we have of Echo, we have a lot of different fishing styles and people that we know that are coming to us saying, hey, have you ever seen this? Or could you guys do something like that? So it may not be the general consumer that's coming to us saying, I want a rod that does this. It's some of our you know friends of Echo that are going, hey, or this is getting popular. Let's look at this. Um, so it's a combination of a pull from somewhere i mean i don't think we're coming up with just too much out of our heads you know going hey let's try fishing for you know whatever it is it's all been done before so then we're just looking to how can we do it the echo way and with our group of friends and people who put input in and that's kind of where we start most of our conversations yeah That's awesome. I think the push,
0: I love the push and pull. I think one of the great examples of the push method is, or in history is like Henry Ford, right? Everybody was using the wagons and carts. And he was like, you know what? Everybody's going to need this car, right? This automobile. And same thing with Apple, right? The iPhone, that was Steve Jobs. He said, you know what? Everybody is going to want one of these things, even though nobody even knows it yet. Right. So, and then you got the opposite, which is the pull. Uh, and that's awesome. So I guess, well, I had a couple of questions for you guys. I could stretch this out today. We could talk in the evening and, and drink beers all day and it'd be <laughs> great, but I'm, I'm going to keep respect your time. But a couple of things, first of all, these are just random, but so the logo, I'm just curious on this. So the logo is the, you know, person shooting out the line. Yeah. Let's see it. There it is. The logo. So who is that now? Is that somebody? Is that Tim? Is that you? Is that just a random where Where'd the logo idea come from?
1: So distance competition, you step in, it's a throwing motion. For single-handed fly rods, which is what my strength was. At one point, I was a world champion in the distance. One year, I beat my brother. Wow. Which is like trying to beat Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was a machine. But I had to use a more predominant step-in throwing motion. So Jamie took his camera and... We took some photos of me throwing as long as I possibly could. So just like a baseball pitcher, there's a certain cadence. So when I stepped in and made the cast, Jamie took the photo, and then Jamie actually generated it with his Photoshop abilities. Hmm. So that was the original Echo logo, a little more upwards on the angle of the dude. So that's the that's me making a long cast. And then we turned it over to a C&D, the design company in Japan, and they streamlined it. They tucked in my waist a little bit. <laughs> flattened the hands out so it's a little more bit dynamic. Yeah, it made you a little more generic. Yeah, Jamie, they tweaked it ten percent, twenty percent, and,
3: and just—I mean—short answer is yes. That's Tim casting. We were on his pond and we had his—we had the cameras out there and we just sat there for probably an hour, him making casts and me trying to catch it. Going, nope, I didn't even get close to that. It was already out there, and, you know. And this was in early digital camera days when you'd poke the button and it would take it like five seconds later you're like "Ah, right i missed it totally so yeah but yeah
1: it's it was all based off tim's distance cast and then echo started in our house and we had a casting pond in our backyard so echo started in vancouver washington in our what was our little guest room and then the garage was became the shipping department jared and jamie poured concrete we built up some more stuff and and then we put stadium lights on the pond, so we'd have we still have it at our house. But so Echo lived for ten years at Tim and Catherine's house. Jared and Jamie drive to the house, and then we grew and moved to an, a, um, a warehouse about two miles away in Vancouver, and now it's in a ten thousand square foot space in East Vancouver. Wow! But so we used to go cast, and we lived on Vancouver Lake. So Jared and Jamie would take the boat out in the, at lunchtime and fish for carp. Or bass in our backyard. Well, Tim so, drove
2: golf balls at it, sir. Yeah. Nice.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's awesome. There's a lot of uh, similarities between golf and uh, and fly casting, isn't there? Yep. I hear yep. that a lot too. Um, so another one here, uh, and I'm not sure I, if this is from you, Tim, but the rope, what, the yarn rod, right? You got that little practice rod with the yarn. Was that your thing?
1: Well, I have to give credit where credit's due. Joan and Lee Wolf had the fly out. It was the top of a five-weight rod with just this red yarn that was super light. Then Mel Krieger, one of my dearest oldest friends, lived three blocks from me in San Francisco. Mel came up with the idea of using macrame yarn. So you have Mel Krieger who developed that yellow line because it weighs the same. It weighs a lot and it goes through the air slowly. And so I think it's the ultimate material Jamie and I dialed in uh, some of the diameters of that stuff, but with the flyo from Joan Wolf and Lee Wolf and the Mel yeah. Krieger, we were going to call it the Mello. <laughs> and <laughs> nice. It didn't fly. Jared and Jamie hit me and told me no way. So we called it the NPR, the Micro Practice Rod. And I said we're going to do this thing. It's going to be awesome. So we actually we still to this day tie all the yarn and the stuff together at the at our warehouse. So those are made here. We ordered the rod parts from China to try and make it an affordable indoor rod. And um, I remember we the, the minimum order quantities was 5,000. And Jared and James said, have you lost your mind? It's going to take us 20 years to sell 5,000 indoor practice rods. Well, because it works so well and the design and the action on the rod feels so comfortable and it matches the cadence of the cast that I would think that first year we sold three loads
0: Roy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the idea being there that I literally, I mean, it's an indoor, if you can't get outside, you can, and, and is it, when you use that thing, it's just as good
3: similarly as out there practicing with a normal
0: rod. Yep. Are you learning this?
3: Yeah. You do yeah. feel the rod load and you know, it mimics the action really well. Um And it's yeah. great for learning to, you know, do some basic spay casts, roll casts, stuff like that, uh, especially on carpet. It sticks really well. It's just, a good fundamental
1: tool. Yeah, you can take your indoor practice rod, buy an adapter that we sell that slides into it and it turns into a two handed rod. Oh. One foot of that yellow line is equal to five feet of regular fly line. No, it's six feet. So when you have six when you have five feet of our line in your casting in your living room, that's the equivalent to thirty feet of fly line. Oh wow. And because of the mesh and the, it goes through the air about at the same speed. So when you're making a 30 foot trout cast with your five weight, it takes 1.3 seconds to screen out. That's how long the NPR goes. Oh, wow. So it helps you with your cadence. It helps you with loop formation. You can roll cast because that red, that red yarn, we tried for a long time. It's a wool blend made in Pakistan or somewhere, but that mimics the leader and, and so it's a great, it's not a toy. It's a tool. It's fun. Then we sell double haul kits so you can double haul and you can buy a speed adapter. And we still make them one at a time at Ray Jeff Sports. Oh, you do? That's cool. I'm going to have to hit you guys up because I love that.
0: I think it'd be a great thing for the kids too to be oh, practicing yeah. the house. Absolutely.
1: And cats. And cats. cats. Yeah. <laughs>
0: our, our, both of our cats got eaten by coyotes recently. So oh, we're, no. we're, we're catless right now. But where do you live, Dave? Uh, I'm out. the co- I'm actually just um, west of you guys out in uh Nahalem. Oh, oh, wow. I, cool. That's right. Yeah. I'm not too far away, but, uh, you know, I love that. That's a cool little rod. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's so many questions here. I guess I can't leave this without one casting tip. I think that, uh, hopefully I think Tim will get you back on to dig in more of this, but you know, you mentioned that the double haul is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. I mean, on casting, you know, getting that timing, what, what's your, somebody's listening now and they're struggling with the double haul, what could you tell them now that might help them think about how to do that or, or maybe how to get better at, you know, I guess, because why double haul? I mean, it gives you more, I mean, could you just literally be a, just do the normal without using the double haul?
1: <laughs> you just asked questions. You let this to be a 30 second. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the double haul increases the line speed and the bend in the rod. So if you had a broomstick that didn't bend, and you can move the broomstick without a double haul, 30 miles an hour, that'll go 30 feet. If you can slide that line 20 miles an hour, 30 plus 20, the line goes 50 miles an hour. There's people in the East Coast that claim the double haul just bends the rod. Well, if you use a rod that doesn't bend, like a broomstick, literally a broomstick, then a double haul shouldn't do anything. But it does. It increases the speed of the line. And speed equals distance. Usually when you double haul, you look like a chimpanzee juggling for the first time. It's pretty clumsy. If I was going to give a casting tip on the double haul, most people have struggled returning with their left hand. It just doesn't coordinate. Get a bunch of rubber bands, bungee them together, and attach it to the bottom guide of your fly rod. Take the top half of your fly rod, set it off to the side, and then pulling down with your left hand or your non-dominant hand, You'll feel the bungee cord stretching, that rubber band stretching, and let it bring itself back up and learn that bounce feel. That's the hardest thing to do is to get left hand to return. And then I was teaching. I used to teach a bunch. Now I don't really teach very often. But I would say, as a rule of thumb, the double haul, your haul hand should match your casting hand in length and intensity. So if you're making a 30-foot cast with a small little right hand, let's say you're right-handed, and your right hand moves one foot, your double haul should move one foot. You're making a 100-foot cast where your right hand is painting the ceiling and it's going six feet, then your haul should go six feet. If your right hand is smooth, don't make your haul aggressive. But Conversely, if your right hand is really aggressive, don't make a wimpy haul. So your haul should match your the, haul, the hand you're holding the fly line with should match your casting hand in length and intensity, and just get that left hand to your double haul hand to bounce up smoothly. Get some rubber bands, time to get it attached to the bottom in the rod. I have a beer before you do it; it always helps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's I love that. That's a good tip. Yeah, I think that is the struggle you think about. It's that it's that rec- when it's coming back in, right? That's the whole thing. And then also, I think Joan Wolf, when we had her on a number of years ago, I think she mentioned that you know when you pull the double haul in the second part, it's is it kind of typically just before you're making that when, when does that come when are you pull, doing the second haul
1: on the forward cast well when your right hand comes forward or your back cast if your right hand is going to smoothly accelerate then your left hand starts hauling uh near the end of the stroke so if you, you come forward with both hands and then haul because if the haul adds speed and power to the cast do you want to add that speed and power at the beginning, the middle, or the end of your cast? What do you guys think? Where are we at the end? At the end. Because if you snap your regular cast too soon and you put the power too soon, you get a tailing loop. So if your double haul comes in too soon, you're going to get a tailing loop. But back to that ina- analogy, the length and intensity. So if your dominant hand is smoothly accelerating and you're snapping it at the end, then that's the same snap that you should feel with your haul. So you'd focus your haul at the end of the stroke.
0: That's it. All right. And without going into the tailing loop, because we could talk about this for a while. Yeah. Is there like multiple problems uh, going on when you have a tailing loop or could it be a lot of different things? Or is it usually, like you said, just the one of these things?
2: Too much power in the forward application.
0: Yeah. That's it. You're, you're out of balance or whatever. Yeah.
1: Too soon with the snap.
0: Yep. Too soon.
1: Too soon with your power is 90% of the tailing loops that I see. So- Get, everybody should get a paintbrush and a bucket of water, dip the paintbrush in the bucket of water, bring your hand up by your ear, and, and imagine and physically snap water off a paintbrush. If your hand goes straight to the target and you snap at the end of your, if you snap uh, the paintbrush properly at the end, all the water projects forward off the paintbrush. If you come forward and you snap the paintbrush like you're making a cast and you hit the power too soon, where does the water go? sprays up in the air around you. So I think a paintbrush and a bucket of water is the best cure for a tailing loop. As soon as you can flick all the water off the paintbrush directly forward at your target, you're going to discover that you've cured and gotten rid of your tailing loops. And when you do that, obviously the paintbrush, if you're trying to snap 100% of the water straight forward, your hand is not going to travel in a curve like you're painting an igloo, is it? It has to go straight forward and you snap at the end. And um, a stiff fly rod is like a paintbrush where you cut the bristles short. If you're flicking water off a stiff paintbrush, how would you do it? Slowly or wimpy or would you throw it harder? You'd flick it harder. Yeah, harder. If I gave you a paintbrush with really long soft bristles and you got it soaked with water and I said, flick all that water at Jared and he's standing five feet in front of you, would you snap hard? And... No, you'd have no. to come in smoother and slower. Right. So soft fly rods are like a paintbrush with long bristles. A stiff fly rod is like paintbrush with short bristles. Shorter, more compact, aggressive snap. Gotcha. Love it. Well, one last one, and we'll get out of
0: here. That I got too many things to, you know, I, I think I'm excited to get the, the follow-up episode here. But um, what, so let's talk about the fiberglass. Like, why does somebody need a fiberglass rod out there? You've got these great rods we've been talking about with this carbon fiber stuff. Is fiberglass just kind of a thing that's there now? It's going to go away eventually? Or what are your guys' thoughts there? It's fun. That's why people love it. It's like I, Jamie and I are both gamers.
2: So we grew up like always looking for better graphics, better, you know, faster stuff. And then along comes the Nintendo Switch, which I'm sure your kids probably have. Um, yep. It proved that it's more about fun and not always about the most powerful right. uh, processor, best graphics fiberglass is a lot of fun i mean one of our longest selling rods is a gecko and it's because it's fun um our fiberglass series rods especially the badass glass just has opened up a lot of people's eyes in terms of what a glass rod can be but also how much fun it can be i mean the first time you get a false albacore on a fiberglass rod it's it's amazing
0: <laughs> yeah
2: it's it's a lot more fun that, than a really stiff carbon fiber rod.
3: Yeah, you give up a little bit of the performance just for being able to feel when you hook a fish on fiberglass. It's amazing. It doesn't matter if it's yep. a six-inch cutthroat on a mountain stream or a hundred and twenty-pound tarpon. You're along for the ride no matter what. It's going to bend all the way to the core, and you know. It's it's just good, and it, especially on small streams like the River Glass, it's great for small small streams, small flies, small fish. It makes them feel like monsters. And then with the badass glass, I mean, no matter what you're catching, it feels awesome. Whether it's bass or bonefish or tarpon, I mean, I've watched Tim catch probably 150 pound tarpon, and it oh and, wow, and going you know basically under the boat and he's just holding on for dear life, and it was great. And it didn't break. Oh, no, no. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I I don't think you could physically break a fiberglass rod fighting a fish.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's one of the things that we kind of love doing is figuring out ways to enjoy people who enjoy themselves. And most of our gear, like we talked about earlier, is based on why did we want to design it? Is there a specific person in mind? And, uh, and this kind of idea of building a comfort spot, a larger sweet spot for uh, average to beginner person, we do make rods for people that are looking for a little higher performance. And we usually use uh, our Korean factories for that, that use higher modulus, recovers quicker. And those are our upper middle price rods. And then like our new rod that I'm really, I'm, I fish more than anything now is this Trout X. And it doesn't have, we, we were going to say it doesn't have a sweet spot because it's a parabola, it's this ever-increasing radius so that at 10 feet, there's a perfect zone, a small zone for perfect 10-foot cast, a 20-foot, a 30-foot. So we say it's meant for intermediate to better casters. But when I hand it to people, they love the fact that it's not a 5.8 weight. It's not an overly stiff 5 weight. It's about a 5.4. And that just means, yeah, it's kind of a little, in the middle of the class for power, but instead of a kind of a radius, kind of a, even flex at 30 or 40 feet it doesn't have that it has no uh hindrance to performance overing a larger range of distances if you see a rod described as oh this rod will present a 7x tippet with a size 20 you know trico oh and the same rod will throw 80 feet into a headwind something's wrong
0: yeah gotcha Okay, I think we're I think we're good to get out of here, you guys. I just want to just one last highlight. Are we, um, you know, as you look out over the, you know, this next year or so, um, any any, just want to leave us with something, any highlights for uh, Echo coming up here, or have we talked about a little bit about what you guys have going? Any any new rod lines you want to give a heads up on or anything?
2: <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jared. Uh, we've got our new, so we have we only post pandemic like getting new products to market has been. A challenge but we're finally starting to get it into our groove um this year we have two new products coming out we've got a um a new trout spay affordable trout spay series coming out um in our, our uh swing switch right yeah and then we have our 84 series we haven't decided on a name yet so i'm calling it 84 i think that's what we're gonna call it um but it's a a bass focused series, smallmouth, oh, cool. small largemouth. Um and Tim developed that with some of our guys over on the East Coast and they did a really good job and put a lot of effort into it. So we're excited
0: about that.
1: Perfect. Gonna be a killer carp rod too. We'll yep. All good carp rod. And yes. carp, bonefish, bass. Yeah, you know, everybody uses a nine foot rod. Why? Yeah. Why aren't rods eight foot eleven or nine foot two? Right. So we just started from scratch and we just said, why do we need a rod? What is it gonna do? And so these rods are going to really be awesome and they're not $1,000 rods. So that's, we're super excited. Perfect.
0: All right, guys. Well, I will send everybody out, like we said, uh, echoflyfishing.com. And if they have questions for you, we'll send them there, but this has been great. I think, uh, you know, I look forward to the next one and, uh, you know, just for everybody out there, I think we all appreciate what you guys have been doing over the years. This has been awesome to chat about and hear a little bit of the inside info. Awesome. We appreciate
3: it yeah thank you it was nice to meet you and it was a fun time
1: we'll do some technical talk next time and geek out but we really appreciate all the stuff that you do and keep it up thanks there we go wetflyswing.com slash 483
0: you can go right now to 483 and check out the show notes check out some of these videos the one with the rod snapping uh breaking the rod in half you gotta check that one out that's a good one we talked about that on the podcast today Quick shout-out, uh, Instagram, two shout-outs. So got Instagram. Head over there right now if you haven't followed us, at Wetfly Swing. This supports this podcast and gives you a chance to engage a little more with us over there. And, uh, and I also want to give a shout-out to Nick Parr. All right. Uh, Nick Parr, Nicholas Parr, said... Uh, Really hoping I get a chance to come out to the Skeena and play with the, in the water with the, you all. For freshwater, I am a sucker for big browns. Late night is my favorite time to target them through a variety of tactics. Saltwater, I love, of course, bowing to the almighty Silver King, but absolutely love sight fishing for snook. Pitching under docks or slinging one way back in the mangroves gets me fired up. Thanks again for the opportunity. and look forward to the drawing. Cheers, Nick Parr. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Nick was uh, giving a shout out when we did our uh, Steelhead School West with uh, Brian Niska, which is still out there. You can check in on that anytime and find out what we have going there. That trip is uh, is definitely right around the corner. Uh, going to be a good one. And thanks for the checking in here, Nick. I hope you appreciate the shout out. And I would love to see you on that trip up to the Skeena Spade Lodge. Uh, if you get a chance to join us, um, that would be amazing. All right, let's take a quick peek at where we are heading next before we get out of here. Let's just see where we are heading next. So we have a couple of interesting episodes. We got uh, Friday, this Friday, we got Maverick fly fishing on. Jeff is going to take us into some of his story and background on it, how he built this business. We hear about that on Friday. And then on Wednesday next week, Lily Renzetti. We got the story of the Renzetti Vice, which has been going strong for over 50 years uh, Lily is, a, is a definitely a, a firepower, firecracker, so this is an awesome one. Uh, and I will leave it at that. I'm not going to open up all the surprises, but uh, I'm going to let you get out of here. And I want to just say right now, hope you have a great afternoon, great evening, or great morning, wherever in the world you are. And I look forward to talking to you soon or maybe seeing you
1: on the water. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.